0: Is anybody else just trying to fit in like everything in the next few weeks of summer? Before like, if you have like a school job or kids in school, like everything's going back to normal. Is anybody else doing that? Okay, so we're doing that and we took, we have our two oldest, 12 and six, love, love, love amusement parks. Okay, not where I'm going with this, but your enthusiasm is appreciated. (laughs) And so yesterday we took them to Kentucky Kingdom. Anybody been to Kentucky Kingdom? Okay, both of you. Um, um, were you there yesterday by chance? Um, and so we, we we take our two kids, and I have to. I'll tell you this. I am. I'm so terrified of heights. Like I am one. I am one. For those of you who are wondering, I'm 6'8". I will look taller in person than I do on the screen. If you're watching online, yes, I am a height. And yet, if you put me on a stepladder, I'm getting busy and looking for help. So yesterday, we're on, um, we rode one of the—I it, I don't want to call it a kiddie coaster, because that's demeaning to me. But it was one of those roller coasters where it doesn't go very high. I mean, it's, it's, it's high-ish, but like little. it's for, for younger people to ride. And so we ride—somehow like, I avoided it. Me and, me and our oldest, we were, going, we were doing something else. And then we come back, and my six-year-old's like, you've got to ride this roller coaster we just rode. I like, I don't. No, we don't need to stand in line. You already ride. Oh, there's no line. Oh, good. Good, good. And so we get in line. We ride this. And so I decided I was going to ride it with my eyes closed, which is my general approach to roller coastering. Uh And we did. And we get to the end of it, and it was utterly terrifying. I didn't say a word the whole time. I just held my breath, and I don't even know how prayer works, but I was doing it. Hardcore. And we get to the end, and uh, my wife and our six-year-old were in front, and me and our 12-year-old here. They both turn around and look at me like, how was it? I was like, that was horrible. And my six-year-old goes, I loved it. (laughs) And then we wrote it again with eyes open. It was just as bad the second time. Uh, it It was just one of those, like, we were in the sun all day, and I was so tired. And then I woke up this morning. I was like, we get to do this, and I have tons of energy for this. And I want to talk today, we're in a series called What About, where we've, most of us, many of us, practically all of us, I would say, have experienced some sort of faith shift, which raises lots of questions about all the things we've been taught, all the categories we've been given, all the doctrines and dogmas that have been handed down to us. And so we've been just talking about those, and today I want to talk about baptism. And I wonder What a visitor from another galaxy, if they were just kind of observing us, and you know they are, if they were just observing us and they were watching us, if they witnessed a baptism, what do you think they would say? Like they just see somebody, and especially if it's a a Baptist baptism. Because you know if it's a Baptist baptism, you are going all the way under. But if they saw somebody standing in some water and somebody taking them and putting them under the water, holding them for just a second and bringing them back up, what would they say? I think they would probably go, it's a little odd. Like it's not a full bath, but it's also not swimming. What exactly are they doing in the water? And if you grew up Christian like me, I didn't ask that question for a very long time. It was just the thing we did. But as my faith began to shift, I started asking the question, what are they doing in the water? What does that actually mean? For many of us, baptism is tied up in what lots of people call the plan of salvation, right? You get baptized because you believe the right things about Jesus and put right in quotes. You get baptized because that's what you do after you say the sinner's prayer, right? Which, shockingly, isn't in the Bible and was never taught by Jesus, you get baptized when you have agreed to all these statements of the creed. You get baptized when you've gone through this class and they say you've gotten it all and now you can do this ritual of being dunked. Some denominations go even further and say, it's not even about what you believe. If you're not baptized, you're in big, 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 big trouble. Anybody grow up in a denomination like that? Like No matter when it was, if you made a profession of faith, if it was 2.45 in the morning, you were getting dunked immediately which makes it hard to go back to sleep when you're dunked in water, right? So it's a, it's a rough night for everybody. And then there's the debate, growing up Southern Baptist, the debate on how to do it. And as a Southern Baptist growing up, we would only have dunked people. But then I became aware that there were other denominations and traditions that they practiced sprinkling, and that some, there are all different ways that this thing can happen. But I think for progressive Christians, and, and as I would say that's where I identify at this moment. As a progressive Christian, the question often is like, why do we still do it? Like, uh, we did it. There are lots of things we've done in the past. But do we still do it? People often ask me, does Grace Point practice baptism? And you won't believe it. They installed one behind here. No, they didn't. They didn't. Some of you are like, oh, that's great. They didn't. Um, But do we practice baptism? Actually, in 2019, in August, around just a little later than this, we had a baptism uh, gathering after a Sunday morning, and we used a big metal sort of trough, and we baptized people in it. Why do we still do that? Does it still make sense? Is baptism still a thing for Christians, progressive Christians, in the 21st century? And so what I want to do today, I want to talk a bit about the roots of baptism, just kind of where it comes from, and then I want to talk about the meaning of baptism and what I think, for me... If somebody were to sit down and say, tell me what you think baptism means. This may, this may not be what it means for you, and that's okay. Um, but if you're looking for language to give baptism meaning, I hope maybe I can offer some of that today. Let's begin with the roots of baptism. Baptism comes from this word, baptize comes from this word, baptizo in Greek, which means to dip, immerse, or submerge. When uh, they created English translations of the Bible, they actually just transliterated this word. They didn't translate it. So if they were to translate it, they would have said they immersed, they dipped, whatever. They just transliterated it, which means they took the letters in Greek, they turned them into letters in English and left it, and there the word baptize enters the language. And it began as a Jewish purity ritual. It was something. It was an act that removed impurity from a person. It wasn't an act to get you clean physically. right? That, that wasn't the point. It wasn't like washing your hands to get the stuff off. It wasn't the hand sanitizer version of a ritual. It was something that removed impurity, and impurity you could contact just in your daily life. There's all sorts of things that can make you impure that would limit you from being able to go into the temple and perform your religious rituals. And so baptism uh, was the way you would handle that before going to the temple. And they had these pools called mikveh, which we called, uh, growing up, a baptistry. and it was these pools, but these pools were fed by living water. And living water just means it was a natural flowing source. So the water, uh, you ever seen a pond or something sit still and get stagnant? And there's mosquitoes and disease and all of that. This was a way to mitigate that problem. And so there's always water coming in, there's always water going out. It's a flowing thing. And you would go into the mikveh and you would immerse yourself three times completely. And when you came out, the, the issue of impurity would be taken care of, and you could go into the temple and you could experience um, the ritual there. You would also do this for conversion. If you wanted to convert, say you were a Gentile, you were what the book of Acts called a God-fearer, right? somebody who is attracted to this tradition, but you're, you're Gentile by birth. If you were going to join the tradition, you would also participate in this ritual. The, the most famous person, really, or to do anything with baptism, anybody know their name? John, not John the Presbyterian. Not John the Methodist, not John the United Church of Christist, it's John the Baptist, which was not his religious denomination, but it was because he was known as this sort of wild character who goes out into the wilderness and he's baptizing people and he's calling them to do this thing called repent. Now, here's the problem with the word repent. Uh, Angry street preachers and fundamentalists have ruined the word repent for us. And let me tell you, I actually think the word repent, the content of the word is really, really important. Because the word repent doesn't mean to feel really bad about yourself. Do you know that? The word repent doesn't mean to feel like you're a terrible person. It doesn't mean to feel guilty. It doesn't mean to feel shame. The word repent simply means this, to change your mind. Has anybody in here ever changed your mind before? Sometimes it's a really good thing to do, right? Sometimes it happens, my kids do it in the drive through and it's not so good. Like when they say they want this thing, and then after you order it, they tell you they want the other thing, and you have to repent to the person who's taking the order through the little talking box. But repentance just means to change your mind. It means to think differently. In Hebrew, that's Greek. In Hebrew, it literally means to return. Like you were going somewhere, and you were going away from where you longed to be, where your human flourishing would lead you, and so you simply turn around and go in the opposite direction. It's sort of like a mind change. I was thinking one way, I was doing, and now I'm going to think differently, I'm going to shift, I'm going to go a different direction. And when John was doing this baptism thing, he did it out in the desert, and he did it in the Jordan River. And what makes this so interesting is two things. One, John is doing a temple thing in the desert. And what I mean is this whole act of baptism was intended to prepare you to go into the temple. And so there would be pools nearby, the temple, to go do these things. And John's doing it in the desert, which is sort of a way in the wilderness, in a place where no one owned anything, in free water. And it's almost like, you know how sometimes the medium is the message? Like, it's not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it, and the method through which you're saying it. Like, the way John's doing it is a way of saying, this movement that I'm sensing, a, a, this longing I have to be a part of something, what this seems like to me is that we need to be in a place that is not governed or controlled by any institution or system, in water that is not owned and managed by anyone, that this is God's water, and this is God's desert, and we are going to go out and engage and repent and practice this ritual out in the wilderness where we are free from oppression and control. And another thing is that it was symbolic in the sense that when the people came from exile, when the Jewish people had been sent to Babylon, when they came home, they would have come through this route through the Jordan River and into Jerusalem, where they could sell. and so John's thing is, hey, we need a we need a new return. We we came back from exile, but we didn't come back from exile. We we, we closed the geographical gap, but we did not close the heart gap in some ways. Things aren't the way they should be. And so, and this would have been John's thinking, if we want God to come back to the temple, because that was the whole deal, like God had never come back to the temple in some of their minds, then we need to do this purity ritual where we reenact the exile. And even the exodus from Egypt, right? When Charlton Heston split the sea and they went through it. Like we're gonna reenact that moment. And in doing so, we're gonna get God's attention and God's going to come with us and we're going to go do this thing. Now, at some point, John was arrested and executed and Jesus ministry began. And Jesus kept practicing this ritual. But it seems like Jesus maybe understood it a little differently than John. A couple months ago, I think we talked about the difference in John and Jesus's message and how John was sort of focused on the imminent, God is going to come and fix everything. And Jesus was sort of saying, actually, I don't think God is going to come and fix anything because God is waiting on us to do something. And I think that's the difference in their messages. And I think Jesus shifted the meaning of baptism. And surely Paul and the first Christians did as well. So here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the meaning of baptism. And I want to talk about two specific things. First, I want to talk about a rite of resistance. I think baptism in the earliest understanding for the earliest communities of Jesus, they understood baptism as a rite of resistance. And second, uh, as a ritual of belonging. And so let's begin with this rite of resistance. There's this text in Romans chapter 6 where Paul is writing about. Jesus and his death, and here's what he said, and and sort of the way it relates to the community, and here's what he says. Don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God, we too can walk in newness of life. If we were united together in a death like his, we will also be united together in a resurrection like his. So often when people are baptized today, there's this moment where they go under and it's like you're identifying with the death of Jesus and you're being brought up identifying with the resurrection of Jesus. I think there's actually more going on there. We read that text as if its its primary point is theology. And we forget that in the ancient world, for Paul, for the first Jesus followers, and for everybody else who lived and breathed in the ancient world, they did not carve the world up like we do. We make the assumption that there's religion and there's politics and economics, right? And that if you want Thanksgiving to get weird, try to bring those two together. But generally, we think they should all be kept separate. What they understood in the ancient world is that these things are going to interact, and either your theology in some ways is going to shape your politics and your economics, or your politics and your economics are going to shape your theology, but you cannot separate those two things out completely. They just can't be pulled away. So whatever Paul is saying, I think there's also a political dimension to it. And here's what I mean. What if, what if he's not waxing theologically? What if he's saying he understands the Jesus movement to be partly about resisting a certain kind of humanity, a certain kind of politics of being human. Here's what John Dominic Crossan said, and when I read this quote from him, it completely shifted so much for me in what baptism means. He says, think about it like this. Rome had officially, publicly, and legally executed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus was therefore dead to Rome, but alive to God. Similarly, in baptism, the followers of Jesus had died to the basic values of Rome's empire and had been reborn to those of God's kingdom. What if baptism isn't just about making sure you've done the right ritual so that when you're standing at the pearly gates and St. Peter asks, you can be like, did it, did it. What if for the earliest communities, baptism was a way of saying, there is a way the world has been working There is the way of empire. There is a way that is dehumanizing. There is a a way that is harmful. There is a way that is damaging. There is a way that looks at other human beings as uh, products and not as people. And we're dying to that way of seeing the world. What if it represented a death to certain values? What if baptism represented a death to the values of capitalism? None of us like that one, right? What if baptism represented a death to a kind of politics that carves up the world based on how much money somebody has or how popular and powerful they are? What if it represented a a dying of a certain way of approaching the way we use power? What if it was a complete shift? And when I was baptized, they just kind of asked me, do you believe in Jesus? Yep, They they didn't say, do you want to be a part of a movement that's actively trying to bring human flourishing to the planet? Do you want to be a part of a movement that's going to resist the dehumanization of injustice? Do you want to be a part of a movement that's going to push back on all the ways the darkness of empire and human political systems and economic systems are trying to shadow the world? I actually wonder how many of us would actually have ever gone through with it. If instead of saying, if they hadn't have said, do you renounce Satan and his works? Do you renounce capitalism? I think we would have had different outcomes. And I think baptism for these first followers of Jesus was a way of saying, I have to understand I am making a shift in what matters in the world. I'm aligning myself with a movement that is seeking equality. I am aligning myself with a movement is seeking flourishing. And so first, I I think baptism for them, that identification with Jesus' death wasn't like, now I can go to heaven when I die. It was, this is how I'm going to be in the world. This is the kind of life I want to embody in the world. This is the vision I now have for the world. And and I think it was beautifully a ritual of belonging. You know, In in the narrative of the book of Acts, there is Early, uh, in the first, you know, around chapter seven, eight, there was a persecution that broke out against this early Jesus community. And the persecution caused the church to scatter. So they were all hanging out in Jerusalem in one place. This persecution broke out, and everybody runs to a different place to go continue the work. And there was this one particular person named Philip who was part of this early Jesus movement, and when the thing happened, he was scattered And in chapter 8, there's this really, really beautiful encounter Philip has with, he meets this man from Ethiopia, this person from Ethiopia, who's on a journey. I want to read some of this text to you. Acts chapter 8, 26. An angel from the Lord spoke to Philip, At noon, take the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he did. Meanwhile, an Ethiopian man was on his way home from Jerusalem, where he had come to worship. He was a eunuch and an official responsible for the entire treasury of Candace. Uh, And Candace is not a name, it's a title for the Ethiopian queen. Now, three details that are really important when we meet this particular human being in this text. First, this person is Ethiopian, which means this person is very likely not, or at least possibly not Jewish. right? Philip, from what we can tell, is a a Jewish follower of Jesus. That's really all there were at this point. Um, And so this, this is likely a Gentile. Second, he's a eunuch, and we'll say more about that in a second. And third, he was coming back from Jerusalem where he went to worship. Now, so he's a eunuch, which means not Jewish, and then, or he's Ethiopian, not Jewish. And then eunuch can mean several things, but here's the most important thing to understand about this. This would have been a person who, even if he were Jewish, that in the Torah, a person who had experienced what he'd experienced was forbidden from worshiping in the temple. Right, So he's possibly a Gentile. He's forbidden from really engaging in the temple ritual, but he's coming back from doing what? Going to the temple and trying to worship. Was he coming home from being excluded? Was he coming home from being allowed to be just this close, but no closer? And so as he's writing... He was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit told Philip, Approach the carriage and stay with it. This is cool for the book of Acts, but if people were doing this in our world, it would just seem strange, wouldn't it? Can we just acknowledge that, that this, this story in the book of Acts, whether or not it happened, we don't know that it actually is a literal historical story, but we know it's a theological story, and it, we just need to name it. That if somebody just was like walking beside your car and was like, God told me, you would really... <laughs> would you not? I, I, like... We don't need, we got to stop reading this and not naming. This would be strange in our world. Running to the carriage, Philip heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, without someone to guide me, how could I? Then he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. The passage of scripture he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken away from him. Who can tell the story of his descendants because his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, about whom, tell me about whom does this prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. Now here's what you have to understand. These early followers of Jesus read the, their scriptures differently. Nobody read the, the book of Isaiah chapter 53 where that's from. Nobody read that prior to Jesus and these first followers of Jesus, nobody read that and said, this is about the Messiah who's going to come and suffer for the world. Nobody read it that way. But what happened is, these first followers of Jesus had an experience, and as they're trying to make sense of their experience, as they're trying to wrestle with and understand what the death of Jesus might mean, because his life had been so significant and their experience of him, whatever that was, after his death had been so life-shaping. They went back to the text and they began to look for clues. Like, where did, this has to have been in there. We just missed it. They began to read it and they read Isaiah 53 and it seemed so eerily similar to what Jesus had experienced that they said, it must have been about him all along. It's been right there the whole time. Nobody had ever read the Bible that way. It is a creative engagement with the Bible And in that, but can I just say this? That's what so many of us are doing today. We're we're actually not betraying the Bible. We're not abandoning. Lots of us aren't abandoning it. What we're saying is, in this time and place, based on our experience of God and our experience of other human beings, our experience of the world and the cosmos, did you all see those new pictures that came out? What? That's just been there the whole time. What universe are we living in? A couple weeks ago after the sermon, somebody said to me, do you know much about quantum physics? It didn't come up at seminary. <laughs> but it should have. Because there's stuff, there's stuff going on, y'all. There's stuff happening at a subatomic level that we just cannot begin to fathom. And all of these experiences... I mean, the moment we put a human on the moon, the three-tiered universe broke apart. And we had to begin to think differently. And for years, I mean, imagine when Copernicus said, oh my gosh, I think we've missed this. I don't, think that, I don't think the sun is going around the earth. I think it's the earth that is going around the sun. And the church was like, nope, you're a heretic. Until like 1963 when they were like, okay, all right, maybe you're right. <laughs> maybe you're right. And that has been one of the problems with religion, specifically Christian religion, specifically the brand of Christian religion I grew up in, is that when confronted with new facts and new evidence, our response has been to bury our head in the sand instead of going, wow, this is way bigger and cooler than we ever imagined. Wow, I thought we had to exclude a bunch of people. Actually, we don't have to. This is actual good news. Wow, the universe is way bigger than we thought. We don't need to burn heretics to get a stake over that. We need to expand our understanding of how this works. We need to relocate our uh, place within this big thing called the ever-expanding universe. Y'all, it's okay to do that. It is really okay to do that. It is not a betrayal of your faith. It is not a betrayal of your tradition. It is living into your tradition. Because what we see from our ancient Jewish siblings and what we see from our early, they were still Jewish, but we would anachronistically label them Christian siblings, is a creativity with the text. Because they needed the text to meet their ever-changing experiences. And it was not a betrayal. It it would have been an abdication of responsibility had they not reengaged it. And so I think, instead of bailing out on our role for the next generation, our job is to come back to the text and say, what did we miss? And how might spirit breathe fresh life into these words that bring to light things we never imagined before? That's why I still read the Bible, by the way. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying this is why I still read the Bible, because there's moments when I'm reading a text I've read 2,000 times, and then all of a sudden I'm like, huh, where's that been my whole life? And it's a paradigm shifter. I just think there's stuff we're leaving behind. and That that was a tangent. What these first Christians were doing, what Philip is doing in Isaiah 53, is he's creatively reengaging his text based on his experience of Jesus. As they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water! What would keep me from being baptized? Now, I need you to hear that question. The question is not like, I don't have a change of clothes. I guess I can't be baptized. Philip, you don't have a change of clothes. I guess I can't be baptized. Hear the question. He had just been to a place where the very essence of who he was as a human being had excluded him from participation. He had just been to a place where he was somewhat welcome, but was not going to be included. And now he's on a journey back and he's encountering another person, not a Christian. Right? Philip wouldn't have considered himself a Christian. Christians didn't exist yet. Philip was a Jewish person who was part of this reformation movement that began with Jesus. But they had a different vision for where the tradition could go. And in this moment, the question is not, what's, it, it, are there any logistics that need to happen before you can dunk me here? The question is, Is this Reformation movement going to be different? Is it going to include people that have previously been excluded? The question from this, I think, Gentile eunuch is, is, does this movement, is it big enough for me? Is this movement's reach going to be big enough that I can participate And he ordered the carriage to a halt, and both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water where Philip baptized him. What was Philip's answer? Yeah, yeah, we're going to do this differently this time. What I love is that Philip's response wasn't, you know, I don't know, we have to ask the apostles in Jerusalem, can I get back to you in a few weeks? His response is not, well, I need to ask the denomination if this is okay before I go through with it. Response is not, well, let me, let me, let me, there's a governing board I need to talk to before I start willy nilly dunking people on the side of the road. He, He actually doesn't say, well, I need to, I need to figure out how giving's doing before we do this because it could dramatically affect our income. He jumps off the chariot, he goes over with this person, and he baptizes him as a way of saying, Yeah, this movement is going to forever push the boundaries of what we think is possible and who we think can be included. There's a Presbyterian minister and professor named Jack Rogers, and one of his books, he wrote this. The fact that the first Gentile convert to Christianity, think about this, the first Gentile convert to Christianity, or what would become Christianity, is from a sexual minority and a different race, ethnicity, and nationality all together which calls Christians to be radically inclusive and welcoming. Amen. Think about that. Think about that. The very first person who wasn't from the same, who went from the same tradition that go, I want to be a part of this. I, 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 want to, I want to connect up with this, is a person who for so many reasons could have been excluded. And yet Philip with no permission, and this is not even something you ask forgiveness for. (laughs) You know the whole, well, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. In this case, it's just better to do it, is a person who could have been excluded. And Philip took this moment and took this bold step and said, no, actually, this is what the movement's going to be. There is no reason why you shouldn't be baptized right here and right now. Think, Think about the questions we often focus on around baptism. Is baptism necessary? For what? For salvation? I don't even know what that means. In the tradition, my earliest tradition, free will Baptist, you could lose your salvation like you lost your car keys. If it had been the 21st century, you would have gotten a punch card for every time you got baptized after you made it all right. Is it necessary for salvation? No. What a strange question. Does it matter how you get baptized? I remember the very first baptism I ever performed was on somebody who was afraid of water. And when we got in there, the, the person just couldn't do it. And I, I was standing there and had no idea what to do. And I said, can I sprinkle you? They're like, yeah. So I just did this and got out. And the conversation at the end wasn't wasn't that beautiful that we worked through boundaries and we made something happen for somebody. It was, that doesn't count. For who? doesn't count for who. I think it counted for them. They faced a massive fear to even set foot in that tub of water. Does it matter how? Does it matter who does it? Does it have to be an official clergy person wearing a robe that looks definitely uncomfortable and hot this time of year? Do you have to have a certain qualification to baptize somebody. Does it doesn't matter when it happens? Does it doesn't matter if somebody's baptized as an infant, or does it matter if they have to have it happen as an adult? <laughs> Do you see how, if you understand baptism as a, a, a rite of resistance and a ritual of belonging, those questions—those are just questions that push belonging out of the picture. Because now we are having debates about the experience of a human being, and I'm sorry, it's not my job to tell other human beings what their experience is. It is my job to make space for it. It is my job to honor it. It is my job to call it holy. It is not my job to be the arbiter of who actually got the thing that counted and who didn't. And as you can see, the the Christian movement very, very quickly shifted from this radical, yeah, we'll baptize baptize anybody. We don't even know if we're doing it right. We're going to do it. To all of these questions and boundaries and boxes that are trying to just keep People just so. Because if we can't put you through the rituals and control them, then we can't control you. I think that's what made people afraid of John's baptism and what Jesus was doing. It's out there in the middle of the wilderness. Who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna quality control that? Who's going to be the one to decide if it's good or not? And I think there's something wild about the holy I think there's something that continually about the holy, about the sacred, that we keep building these boundaries and barriers, and the holy keeps saying, I am not bound. We didn't agree to this. I am not bound by your doctrines. I am not bound by your dogmas. I'm not bound by your way of practicing rituals. I am not bound by your explanations. I'm here to invite you into an experience, and for that experience to transform how you show up in the world. But your job, the holy says, is not to police other human beings. It is when you're on a carriage ride and they say, There's some water. What do you think? You say, well, I brought my waiters. It just works out. That I brought my waiters. When you see baptism through this lens, it, it, it's about embracing not a religious system, but it's about embracing new values. It's about seeing the worth and the dignity and the beauty and the inherent divinity of every single human being you'll ever come in contact with. It's about reminding each and every one of us that we have been participants in systems that are harming people. And I'm not even sure how, but we have to begin the process of disentangling. I do not believe if our planet's going to survive that empire is the future of it. I, I do not believe if our country is going to survive that making America great again is the future. I think the future is honoring the divinity and beauty in every single human life and removing the boundaries and barriers. It's a new vision for the world, and that vision has a, is a word. It, it's belonging. Baptism is about Belonging. There there is something meaningful about ritual, isn't there? I mean, even when we try not to be religious, and I went through that whole phase when I was early, you know, as a pastor, like, we're not about religion, we're about relationship. So how do you do that? Well, every Sunday morning, (laughs) right? How do you do the the relationship over religion? Well, we get together every Sunday morning and practice religion, together, relationship. Like, we're a, ritual, we're a ritualistic species. We do things, like, my, I talk to people sometimes who are like, I'm done with church. Awesome. What do you do now on Sunday mornings? Like, well, me and some friends get together for brunch every week. So, like, uh, avocado toast and mimosas are your sacrament. And that's fine. It's beautiful. It's part of... <laughs> and if you're watching online, everybody just left. They realized they could just go do that. That was... No, what is that? There's something in us. There's nothing wrong with ritual. It grounds us. Those those coming-of-age rituals are so, so important. They they, they pre-exist. Christian. you you know this. Cultures have had these coming-of-age rituals forever because they ground us. They ground us in community. They're about belonging. It's a way of saying, look, you're us, and we're you together. And I think baptism, if that's what it's doing, I don't know, how, like, we're in the South, that dog still hunts. That, that's still a real thing. That's still a beautiful experience of a group of humans coming around another human being and, and them being baptized, and they come out, and it, this sort of this moment of, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, right? That moment when Jesus is baptized and he has the divine speak over him, and th- that's what happens in community when somebody's baptized. We as a community are saying over somebody, you are the beloved And in you, we find great joy. Is there a place for baptism in progressive Christianity? I really hope so. Because I think we all need moments that remind us. And every time I see somebody get baptized now, I'm going to think about, here's to the resistance. Because that's what we're signing up for. But every time I see somebody get baptized, I'm going to think, I really belong here. I really belong here. And you really belong here. And so here's the thing. We've been talking about this. People have asked about this. They asked, specifically asked me to talk about baptism. They're like, are we going to practice that? And so here's, here's the thing. We are planning a time, uh, like an extra gathering somewhere. Um, if you are interested in participating in baptism through this lens, um, or whatever your lens is, you belong. Um, if you're interested, there's a way you can let us know that. And we, we've kind of got a tentative date. We don't want to announce it because nobody may sign up. But if you would like, and if you don't, then what are we doing? Um, No, but uh, here's how you do that. So if you'll scan the QR code, even if you filled out a connection card already before, even if you filled one out already this morning, if this is a thing that you would like to participate in in this community, um, fill out the connection card and in the notes, um, just put, I'd I'd like to talk about the baptism thing or whatever language you want to use. If you're here and you have some place that this could happen, a lake, a pond, swimming pool, really cool bathtub, whatever that looks like. (laughs) And you're like, I would love to turn my pool, pond, hot tub, bathtub, whatever. I would like to turn that into a space for this beautiful act of belonging. Let us know. We would love that as well. Um, so, yeah, and, and we're not doing this because you need to be washed clean. We're not doing this because you need to be saved. We're not, doing, we're not offering this because there's something inherently bad and broken with you and you just need to get it. No, 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 no. We're offering this as a way for so many of us who have been told again and again because of who we are, because of who we love, because of our theology and our faith shift, because of all these many reasons that we no longer belong, we want to make sure you know at Grace Point, your belonging will never be up for negotiation. Last week when I was a wild goose, one of the questions was like, but how do we we engage with people who just really see all this differently than us? I just said, gosh, I, I really, that's a great question and you'll have to ask somebody else because I'm happy to engage with somebody, but what I'm not happy to do is debate the value and the dignity and the belonging of other human beings. And as long as we're doing that, then I, there's a limit to how far I can go. You, here, in this room, online, wherever you are, your dignity, your belonging, your worth, your inherent goodness is not up for debate in this community. Because whether you ever hit the water or not, The moment you entered this world, the divine voice said, this is my beloved child in whom I find great joy.